If you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to John chapter 6. John 6, as we take our third and final week looking at this longest chapter in the Gospel of John as we walk through the Gospel of John together. Um, before we get into that, I, would, I want to confess that this is hard to understand. This passage is not an easy one in any way. Um, and I was significantly helped by this little commentary produced by St. Helen's Bishop Gate. It's in a series called Read, Mark, Learn. I know summertime sometimes is a time to start new things. And if you're looking for a good series that walks you through a book of the Bible, you want to do a book, a Bible study this summer or at any time, Read, Mark, Learn by St. Helens. They're very helpful, very practical, very simple. It's, not un it's unlike most Bible studies or commentaries that I've read. I'm not sure if it's a commentary or if it's a Bible study. It's a little bit of both. So if you're looking for something helpful, this is a really good series, and it helped me just by simplifying some of these really deep things that are happening in John chapter 6. There are some stories that you read or you watch in which the author decides to reveal how it's going to end at the very beginning of the story. Uh, usually when you think about that, a book or a movie, you, you don't want to know the end. You don't want spoilers, right? Um, but sometimes a story is good enough that even if you know where it's going, you're still compelled to, to read or to watch because the, you're on a quest to discover why do things end the way that they do in this particular story. Uh, in John chapter 6, we've been walking through uh, this for a couple weeks now, as I said, and we're here with, with Jesus. We were with Jesus uh, and his disciples on the hillside as Jesus took five small loaves and two fish and broke them and used those uh, those, that small amount to feed 10 to 20,000 people. Uh, we were on the boat, you remember, with the disciples when Jesus came to them walking on the water. And then, yes, and then uh, we, we watched as the, the perpetually hungry crowd came looking for Jesus, and he announced to them that he wasn't going to give them any more bread because he wanted them to understand that he was the bread of life that the miracle of the loaves and the fish was not supposed to, f to fill their bellies, but rather to reveal that Jesus alone could give them eternal life. And yet, as we look at this story, if we've read to the end, we, we know how it's going to end. Because verse 71 tells us that many in the crowd refused to receive Jesus' offer of life, and they instead decided to walk away from him. That was the last time that they followed Jesus. They no longer walked after him anymore. And knowing how the story is going to end, we might ask, why? Why would, they, why would they walk away from Jesus? If you're a follower of Christ, you read these words and you say, why would they turn from such an offer? How could they not see what Jesus wanted to, to give them? This Gospel of John, remember, announces to us, believe in Jesus and find life in him. And, and then it helps us to answer questions like, well, who is Jesus? And what is the nature of, of true belief? What does it look like to really believe in him? And what is this life that he is offering to us? This chapter answers all of those questions, but here in the latter part of John 6, we get some clear answers to this question. What is the nature of true belief? What does it look like to really trust Christ? We get that by 
as, as Jesus shows us why some people don't believe and why others do. We find answers to this question of why some believe in and others do not, and we find answers to those questions coming from the questions of the crowd and of the 12 disciples. So today we're going to look at four questions that are posed in this passage and hopefully understand more fully why some of the people in this passage and some of the people in our lives believe and some walk away. Why some freely take of Jesus and find him to be the one who's the bread of life and while others choose to walk away and never find life in him. But let's be clear, the answers to these questions are not simple. This isn't a true false quiz. This is, there's no multiple choice with these questions. These answers that Jesus gives are, are difficult words. They lead to scandal. They lead to anger in the crowd. And they lead to anger in people in our world today. So as we look at this passage, I want to give you this as our big idea. Don't expect the truths of Jesus to be simple, but don't expect to find truth anywhere else. Don't expect the truths of Jesus to be simple. Sometimes we think Jesus is just simple and easy to understand. Don't expect that with this passage. <laughs> don't expect the truths of Jesus to be simple, but also don't expect to find truth anywhere else. Just because he's hard to understand doesn't mean that he is not the source of all truth. If you're a Christian here today, I hope that we together would be moved again towards the wonder of salvation, towards the beauty of Christ and his gospel and what he has done in planning it. But I hope that we're also compelled to boldly share the gospel message that Jesus is the bread of life with others understanding that while some will walk away from this offer, in fact, many will walk away from this offer, there are those who will taste and see that the Lord is good. And if you're here today and you're skeptical about the truth of Jesus, you're skeptical, skeptical about the offer of life that he holds out to you, then I pray that you would see today that there is no one and there is nothing else that can give you the life that Jesus offers. So don't expect these truths of Jesus to be simple. But also, don't expect that you'll find truth anywhere else. We're going to read the rest of John chapter 6, beginning in verse 41. You'll remember that um, on the day after Jesus had miraculously fed them, the crowd came looking for him. It becomes clear that they are looking for him. Why? Because they wanted more food. And Jesus knows this. Therefore, he, he pushes back on their request for more food. And he tries to help them see that he is actually offering himself to them as the bread of life, as the one who had come down from heaven. So there's this shift that happens in verse 41 where the crowd moves from relentlessly seeking after Jesus and seeking, not after Jesus, but seeking after food from Jesus to now questioning what Jesus is saying and just who he thinks he is. Look at John chapter 6, beginning in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered him, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Powerful words of Jesus. It's true that we shouldn't expect the words of Jesus to be simple, <laughs> but we also shouldn't expect to find truth anywhere else. Four questions is what we're looking at. The first key question of this passage is found in verse 41, verses 41 through 51, address a question of presumption, we'll call it. Uh, or you could say assumption if you want. Presumption, assumption, I think they're the same thing. A question of presumption, which is, how can this man say he is from heaven? A question of presumption. How can this man say he is from heaven? Notice this key and revealing word, grumble. So the Jews grumbled about him. Jesus points it out in verse 43. And then he senses that they're grumbling again in verse 61. Biblically, it's a word that we associate with the Israelites in the wilderness. They grumbled. They grumbled when things got difficult and they didn't get what they wanted. And their grumbling 
cause them to miss an opportunity to trust in God. Much of the same thing is happening here, actually. Remember, the shadow of the Passover celebration is over this entire chapter. And here we find God's people grumbling. Why? Grumbling because of a difficult teaching of Jesus and because they're not getting what they want. What did they want? They wanted food. They weren't getting it. And then instead of getting food, they got a hard teaching. And so they grumbled and missed an opportunity to trust in Jesus. So what's their hang-up? Why are they struggling with this teaching of Jesus? Well, first off, they're grumbling because Jesus said he came from heaven. And they said he couldn't have come from heaven because we know his parents. How How can he claim a heavenly origin if he has earthly parents? Now, not surprisingly, this is a very earthly way of thinking. Remember, we've seen throughout John's gospel that we naturally think in very earthly ways, and therefore we struggle to understand the wisdom, the heavenly wisdom that Christ has brought down. So they're thinking in a very earthly way. We know this guy's parents. He can't be from heaven. But this is also a very presumptuous question. They look at Jesus and they assume immediately that they understand him. They know exactly who he is. Do you ever have someone presume to know exactly who you are? They look at you and they automatically make assumptions about you. They know who you are. Maybe we can say that we do that to other people. We look at them and we assume that we know everything about them. We know their life story, why they act the way that they do. Well, they're doing that here with Jesus. They look at Jesus and they assume immediately that they understand him. Earthly parents means he's not from heaven. And on this and on many other points, many people follow in their footsteps in our world today. The crowd presumes to understand who Jesus was And so too, the world presumes that they know who Jesus is. They say, well, he was a man. Sure, he was a historical figure who seemed to have some sort of a large following, but he certainly wasn't God. That's not possible. And before they've ever tried to listen to him, their assumptions have caused them to reject him out of hand. They assume that their earthly wisdom, that their earthly eyes are superior to any heavenly revelation that Jesus might bring. They're not going to listen to what Jesus says about himself because they've already presumed to decide who he is. Well, in response to this, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't defend his heavenly origins. He doesn't talk about the miracle of the virgin birth. He doesn't talk about the role of Mary or the role of Joseph in his incarnation. Rather, he doubles down on who he is and the way that, the fa- that he and the Father are drawing people to, to themselves. He speaks of the fact that in the plan of redemption, the Father is drawing people to believe in the Son, and that those who believe in the Son will be resurrected by him on the last day. Again, a common theme, we ris- we, they will rise in the last day. But it says that an understanding of this truth must be given supernaturally by God. It's not something that we can come to on our own. And in, doing, in saying that, he quotes Isaiah 54, that those who come to believe the truth are taught of God. And then he says that he is the one who has seen the Father and is from God. Therefore, he is able to teach the truth about God in a way that no one else can. He has the authority to do that. The crowd... And we, along with them, naturally, want to rely on our own wisdom and our own observations. But Jesus makes it clear that our reason and our intellect only get us so far. 
And if that's all we are relying on, then we will reject him. Because only those whom the Father draws, only those supernaturally taught by God, by the one who has come from God, who has seen God, by Jesus, only those will receive him. So having invited them to rely on this heavenly witness instead of their earthly presumption, he goes back to speaking of himself as the bread of life. And here he specifically says that he's better than the manna that the Israelites ate. That's what the crowd wanted. They'd have been happy if Jesus said, how about some manna? They would have been thrilled. But he says he's better than the manna. Of course, we know that the Israelites, even when they were initially ecstatic about the manna, they eventually came to grumble about it, didn't they? They got sick of the manna. Not only that, but Jesus says they ate that bread, and what happened to them? They died. It says that twice in this passage. The people who ate the manna died. The, the manna could not sustain them, at least for eternity. But Jesus is offering them a bread that if they will eat it, he says, you will live forever. Again, if they are stuck in an earthly way of thinking, they will miss what Jesus is offering, as will we. We will look for Jesus to satisfy all of our earthly appetites. And then when we find ourselves hungry again, what are we going to do? We will grumble, just like the crowd and just like the Israelites. When we get what we want and it stops satisfying us, we'll come to Jesus and we'll say, give me more, Jesus. And we will reveal that we never actually wanted Jesus. We just wanted the gifts that he could give to us. But the problem with earthly bread is that you have to keep eating it. (laughs) And even if you keep eating it, you'll still die. But Jesus, the true bread from heaven, is a feast that will never run out and that will give us life for eternity. If we come to Jesus with presumptions about him or presumptions about what we need to be really satisfied, what what he should give us, then we will reject him. But if we look to him, not with presumptions, not not determining what we need, not determining who he is, but, but wanting to hear from him, if we look to him for heavenly wisdom and we ask that, that God would teach us in a supernatural way, supernatural truths, then we will find out something. We will find that Jesus is living bread, the living bread that we're all looking for. I think this helps us to pray for our own souls, but also for those that are outside of Christ that we love. We pray that God would draw them, how? By opening their eyes to their false presumptions about who Jesus is, and also to their incorrect conclusions about what will satisfy their souls. So we pray for our friends and our family members, and we say, God, help them to see that what they assume is true about Jesus isn't true, and help them to see that what they assume will satisfy them really will not. Well, the crowd again missed the point, though. And this time it was because of the last word that Jesus, is, Jesus uses in verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So we find in verse 50, verses 52 to 59 a question of offense. The first is a question of presumption. This is a question of offense. And the question is, how can this man give us his flesh to eat 
how can this man give us his flesh to eat? As I read that, were, were you shocked? I think the boldness and the shock of Jesus' words are not hard for us to understand. And they're impossible to miss. He doesn't say it once, does he? He just keeps saying over and over again, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. It sounds strange to us, doesn't it? It sounds like some sort of cannibalism or some sort of like pagan ritual. Eat his flesh? Drink his blood? Is Jesus trying to be offensive? No, I don't think so, but that's the result. The crowd asks, what are you asking of us, Jesus? I think to understand this, again, don't be surprised, we go back to the shadow of the Passover celebration that is over all that is happening here. Because I think it helps us to see that what Jesus, the Lamb of God, is saying is that the, the Passover meal of the Jews that, that commemorated the, the faithful, it, let me start over, this is what he's trying to say. The Passover meal of the Jews commemorated when faithful Jewish families in Egypt, they, when they took a spotless lamb into their home. You remember this story from the Old Testament. They take this lamb into their home, and after a set number of days, what do they do with that lamb? They kill that lamb. They kill the lamb, and they take the blood of the lamb, and they put it on the doorpost of their house. And then what did they do with the rest of the lamb? They ate that lamb in their house. They did it standing up so that they were ready to leave uh, when they were freed from slavery after the angel of death passed over and killed all the firstborn of Egypt, but spared those who had the blood on their doorpost. Flesh and blood were at the heart of this celebration. And it was a celebration of the greatest act of redemption in Israel's history. And now what's Jesus talking about? He's talking about flesh and blood. He's talking about eating flesh. So Jesus is saying that John the Baptist was right when John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as the Lamb of God, he is saying that the way he will take away the sin of the world is by coming in the flesh so that he will be crucified in the flesh and shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. What that means is this. The offense of the gospel is not cannibalism. <laughs> the offense of the gospel is crucifixion. It's the fact that this one, that the crowd wanted to make a king, was going to die on a cross. They could not understand, and they were offended at the thought of a Savior who would come in weakness and would die. And yet the death of Jesus as the Lamb of God is the only hope that we have of salvation. So the question is, what does it mean to eat the flesh of the Son of Man and to drink his blood? What is Jesus asking of us? This entire passage points to the fact that what that means is it means to believe. It means to believe. That's, all, that's the illustration, that's what he's saying. To eat of Jesus is to receive him by faith as the only one who can give us life. He says this three different ways. He says it first in verse 30, 53, he says it negatively. He says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have life in you. 
If you don't believe in me, if you don't receive me, if you don't trust in me, you will not have life. He says it positively in verse 40, 54. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And like me, when I resurrect, they too will be raised on the last day. To believe in Jesus is to have eternal life. And then he says it relationally in verse 56. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. This is the first time that Jesus uses that word abide to refer to the way that we relate to him, but it's not going to be the last. In using this term, he says that the relationship between Jesus and those who believe is like the relationship between the Father and the Son. Did you see that in verse 57? Verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So, in the same way, whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Jesus says that the living Father is the reason that the Son lives, and so too the crucified and resurrected Son is the reason that those who believe in him will also live. What a promise that is. If we believe and so partake of Jesus, then we are in Christ, and Christ is in us, and he gives us eternal life just as the Father gave life to the Son. In verse 58, Jesus comes back to his chorus. He comes back to the illustration of the bread once again, and he says that his flesh is not like the manna that was eaten for a time, but then those who ate it became hungry. No, he is the bread of life, and to eat his flesh and drink his blood through believing in him is to have eternal life. There's no way to receive that eternal life, the eternal life of Jesus, other than to believe in him. There are those who look at this passage and say that it's directly related to the Lord's Supper, and especially this section here. So let me just speak to that for a minute. If we connect it to that, this teaching uh, can get a little confusing. (laughs) And people look at this and they say that the eating of the bread and the drinking of the cup in the Lord's Supper is an actual eating and drinking of the flesh and the blood of Jesus. Two thoughts. First, while this passage has echoes of the Lord's Supper, I don't think it is directly related to it. Uh, Colin Brown says it this way, John 6 is not about the Lord's Supper. Rather, the Lord's Supper is about what is described in John 6. I think that's the right way to think about it. Jesus is not describing the Lord's Supper, but he is describing what the Lord's Supper represents. But that means that we shouldn't draw out truth specifically about the Lord's Supper from this passage. Secondly, I think that if we would as I thought about this, to think that Jesus is saying that we need to literally eat his flesh and drink his blood and that we do that in the Lord's Supper, to do that is to fall into the very trap that Jesus is trying to help these individuals break out of. And what is that trap? It's the trap of thinking, that in, it's the trap of thinking in purely physical and earthly ways, not in spiritual heavenly ways. In other words, why would we need to eat something physical 
in order to obtain spiritual life. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about physical life. He's talking about spiritual life. And so he's speaking in spiritual ways. Why would God require the the consuming of Jesus' body and blood to give life to our immaterial immaterial souls? Therefore, I think to eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood is to believe in him. It's to trust in him and to trust that he will bring us life. It's a powerful illustration. But like any good illustration, if you press it too far, you get into dangerous territory. So, Ultimately, the question is, will we believe? Will we believe? Will we eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus? And who will believe? That's the third question. It's asked and answered in verses 60 to 66. It's a question of rejection. A question of rejection. Who can listen to this teaching? See that in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it. Remember, the crowd presumed to know who Jesus was. They're offended at the thought that he would suffer and die, which means that this is a hard teaching. And it's so hard that they think, they can't think of anyone who would ever believe this. The question, who can listen to this teaching, they, they assume the answer. No one. No one's going to listen to this. It's, it's too much. In response, Jesus refers to the cross, I believe, even more, clearly than, even more clearly when he says, in a sense, do you find these words offensive? You notice that in verse 61. Do you take offense at this? Yeah, they did take offense at this. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? I think what he's saying is you find these words of, uh, offensive. What about when I ascend? What about when I am lifted up on the cross to die? Because that is the way I will go back to the Father. The way I will ascend back to where I was before is through death and through resurrection. When that happens, you're offended by my words. What about my death? The cross, again, is the stumbling block of the gospel. The thought that our sin is so heinous, is so ugly that Jesus has to die for it is not something that people want to hear. People want to hear that they're basically good and that God will accept everyone in the end. Or they, are, they want to hear that they're capable of, of doing good things and they can be made right with God. These are the kinds of salva- salvation messages that we want to hear. We don't want to hear the ones that have a man being killed for our sins. We don't want to hear that kind of message that that it's only through believing in him, through eating his flesh and drinking his blood that we can find life. Those are hard messages and ones that our hearts naturally want to reject. So can anyone listen to this message? Will anyone receive this? And the answer is yes. But who? Verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Those who are born of the Spirit can hear this truth for what it is. Jesus is clear, the flesh profits nothing. The flesh will not save you. Our earthly thinking and our earthly actions and our earthly understandings are of no profit 
and they will never make sense of this teaching of Jesus. We will never come to understand what Jesus is talking about if we are simply using our physical, intel, our, our brains. It will not make sense to us. But if we, John chapter 3, are born again through the Spirit, then our eyes are open to see that it is Jesus and Jesus alone that can give us life. Jesus is clear that he knows who will believe and who will not. He knows right then who is believing and who is not believing. He's spoken all these words to them. Why? Because the gospel call goes out to the whole world, but he knows who is going to believe and who will not believe. I think this is why he brings up Judas later on. when He, he knows that Judas is going to betray him, that Judas doesn't walk away in that moment. He sticks with the 12, but he knows that Judas is going to walk away. Why does he talk about Judas? Because he wants to reveal that Judas doesn't take him by surprise, that Judas is part of the plan. Jesus is no more surprised by Judas walking away than he is surprised by the crowd turning and walking away because Jesus knows those who are his and he knows that no one will come to him unless they are drawn by the Father. He is sovereign over all things, including those who come to him. We can see Jesus then in the 12 looking at this crowd as they leave the synagogue go off and board their boats and go back across the lake, never to follow Jesus again. And if the disciples had put their hope in a large crowd as the sign that Jesus was the true Messiah, well, they would have walked away right then. But Jesus turns to them, and he essentially says, would you like to follow them? Would you guys like to leave as well? What do you think about what I just said? I wonder if this question is another test. Do you remember... We're told right at the beginning of this chapter that Jesus asked Philip where they were going to buy bread to feed that crowd. And why did he do it? To test them. He wanted to know what they believed. Maybe that test and the feeding of the 5,000 as well and Jesus walking on water, that maybe that had prepared them for this moment, for this test. But even more so, the response of Peter reveals not that they had passed that test, but rather that the Spirit had given them life. So we find in verses 67, 67 to 71 a question of belief. And it's the best question in the text, which is, where else can we go? A question of belief. Where else can we go? We often jump on Peter, don't we? Peter's the guy that puts his foot in his mouth. Of course, he's the guy that talks, so we've got to give him some credit because he's willing to take a chance. But we don't jump on Peter here. No, because Peter reveals the true belief that's in his heart. Because when he says, where else can we go, what is he really saying? He's saying there's nowhere else to go, Jesus. There's nowhere else to go at least to find eternal life. When I was in the Philippines recently, I wanted to find some chicha corn for my kids and for Vicky. <laughs> uh, so Pastor Joshua put me on the back of his motorcycle and we rode around Rojas. We went to all these different stores trying to find chichicorn. I mean, we couldn't find it anywhere, at least the good stuff. Until we arrived at our final destination, we walked in and, and there it was because Joshua wouldn't give up. Um, and 
I was ready to give up, but he knew we could find it. He knew if we went to enough different places that we would find it. That's true of many things in life, isn't it? I mean, if you're looking to buy something, there's a store in Louisville that has it. And if there's not a store in Louisville that has it, there's some website that has it, if it's not in a store around here. We can find it somewhere. When we think about the disciples, and if they wanted bread for their stomachs, there were lots of options. There were a lot of places that they could go to. What else did the crowd want? Well, they wanted a king. If the disciples wanted a king, if they wanted some sort of a political leader who could promise to give them everything that they wanted, they could probably find a candidate that they could put up as king. But Peter sees that they don't really want bread. And they don't really want a king in that way. Peter says, I know what we really need. We need eternal life. And the more Jesus talked, the more Peter realized that there was nowhere else and no one else that could give them what they wanted. He said, I, I know what I need, Jesus. I don't need bread. <laughs> and I, I don't need you to be a king and I don't need you for all these things that I've been searching for my whole life. What I need, Jesus, is I need eternal life. And I don't know where else to go now. Because I found that you alone have it. Why is Jesus the only one who has eternal life? Well, Peter says it, doesn't he? Who, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's who you are. You're, you're not just a great teacher. You're not the rabbi that the crowd calls him. No, he is the anointed one. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's, he's the one who has offered up his life for our eternal salvation. Jesus alone is the bread of life. Jesus is the, alone is the one who can satisfy us. And only as we believe in him, only as we eat his flesh and drink his blood will we find eternal life. Where else are you going to go? There is nowhere else to go to find eternal life, only in Christ. So will you believe? Will you throw off all your presumptions about who Jesus is and not reject the offense of the cross? If you will, do you know why you'll do it? because the Spirit gives life and because the Spirit opens your eyes to see that truth. Some people ask questions like, well, how can I know that? How can I know that the Spirit is drawing me? How, how do I know that I really belong to Christ? You belong to Jesus if you don't walk away. If you don't walk away, then you are one of his true disciples. You belong to him if you receive this offer of eternal life through faith. If you eat his flesh, and drink his blood. You belong to Jesus if you see that there is nowhere else to go to find eternal life, and you take him as the bread of life. And if you've trusted in Jesus for eternal life, then I think these words of Jesus remind us that this is not our own doing, is it? It is the gift of God. Every single one of us would walk away from Jesus if we were resting in our own flesh and our own understanding. It's not because of our flesh or our intellect or our good works or anything in us. It's because God's Spirit has caused us to be born again 
so that we can see who Jesus is, so that we're not offended by the call of the cross to repent and to believe in him. As I said, this passage is not about the Lord, is, is, is not directly about the Lord's Supper, but the Lord's Supper is about what this passage is saying. It's reminding us that our hope of eternal life is found in Christ. It's found in eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which means believing in him, turning from our sins, trusting in Christ alone for our salvation, trusting that he has paid the penalty for our sin through his death on the cross. He tells us to remember him, to remember what he has done as we take the bread and the cup together. And so, if you believe in Jesus, if you believe that, that he is the one who has lived and died and risen again to give us life, if you believe that there's nowhere else that you can go to find eternal life, then I want to invite you to take the bread and the cup with us. We also ask that you have been baptized, and we do that to seek to protect uh, what the meaning of this meal is. Um, and so I want to invite you as we pass the bread and then the cup to, to take it with us. Um, as we do it, we will we'll pass the bread first and then we will take that all together and then we'll do the same with the cup. Uh, but before we do that, let me just give us an opportunity, a moment of silence to prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper together. So let's take that moment of silence and then I will um, pray for us um, and if I could ask, uh, Jake, would you help me to pass the, the bread and the cup? Thank you. So. Father, we confess that these words are not easy to understand. They are not simple but they are truth. And so we thank you for them, that they lead us into truth, that they remind us that our only hope is in Christ. I pray as we take the bread and the cup together that you would um, cause us to do it in a way that glorifies you as the author and the perfecter of our salvation, as the one who has awakened us to the truth, as the one who... Um, who alone can give us eternal life. That's this all in Jesus' name. Amen.